yeah, getting this thing started, what exactly is it that you do online? You know, what do you uh, guide people toward or what are you, what are you all about? I am, uh, I utilize aspects of technology to be a spokesperson for the divine. And I've done that for my entire life since the day that I came back hmm. when, and reluctantly for my first 20 years. And I currently, my current incarnation of doing that is through YouTube primarily. I run a channel and it's called Not Church. And I do lots of interviews. And I think that the interviews are really my main job because when I have an opportunity to talk one-on-one -on -one and with a larger audience about the experience I had and multiple experiences that I have had into divine union, I have an opportunity to become uh, a voice and a presence and a channel for the oneness of being, which unites all humanity and much more than humanity. And for a period of time after I died, I was in the church. I went to divinity school at Yale and I studied for three years in an independent study under the dean. I studied, she allowed me to study mysticism, which they don't teach at Yale necessarily, but there are classes and she eventually found money for a professor for me and paid for a semester of a, of a professor's salary brought one in from outside um, among other classes that I took. And then she talked me into going into the church, but my NDE, my, my big NDE, my first one left me without a belief system. I am not a believer. And I used the church as a cultural context for my own employment. So I could do a job. I could get a salary, get paid <laughs> in order to raise a family and still be of service to the divine. So I worked within Christianity, United Church of Christ in particular, although I was raised Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, the, the, my understanding of the divine when I was dead is that there, there is no religion. There is no gender. There is no anything that we have conceived the divine to be is not the divine. Anything we think it is, is not what it is. It is so much more and greater than that. And when I died and came back, I became a, a compression of aspects of the truth that I could carry with me in my context of my life and my brain and my education and my languaging. So I became a, I became a languager. I'm deep into the study of mysticism, East and West, uh, Upanishads and the Vedas. I've read all the all of the Nag Hammadi texts and all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've read, you name it, I've read it. And I did it over a very long period of time while I was hiding inside the church, being of service to people, working with the homeless, working with the poor, working with the broken, with the dying, with the grieving. And, and, and all the time, communicating it the, to the best of my ability. I was hidden. I didn't tell anybody that I had died the whole time I was in the church till the very end. Mm -hmm. I kept that completely hidden because uh, I didn't want anybody to think I was a kook. Yeah. You know? And I had a family to raise and I had to eat. I got to put bread on the table. And so I 
pretended to be a believer when I wasn't, but none of that ever interfered with my interior journey, which I actually had in my contract. So I, in the churches where I worked, I asked them to put in my contract, I had to have space for study and meditation. And my meditation included yoga. And so that was, a, that was a weirdo thing back in the early 80s that I was doing these kind of practices. So I had to build it in a way that I could protect that, that most private space of myself so that I could learn to become a communicator. I was an English major as an undergrad, I went to UMass Amherst and in the English department. Nice. And, um, and then I, I worked in television for 15 years, I got recruited to TV and I worked on, uh, if you're in New England, then you might know WG, WGBH, no, I'd love to have worked at GBH. I worked at uh, uh, Channel 6 and Channel 2 in Maine as a storyteller, as a communicator. And so for a period of my life, I was in the church, pre preacher, I was a preacher, but what I was really doing was communicating one message all the way along. I have one message that you are beloved by the lover. And you always have been, and you always will be, and there's no, that is unbreakable. Wow. And so in television, I, I, I wrote and told 1700 stories. I, I had two minutes every morning before the weather to be an inspirational storyteller. And I spoke about love and hope all the time in 10 and a thousand different ways. And nowadays, after that show ended, the TV stations were purchased by new corporations. And after the show ended, I entered into my next incarnation. I died, actually. I died again in 2015. And by 2018, I knew in 2016 that, the that my show was going to end after 90 years. We've been on the air for 91 years. I was the fifth guy to have this position. It started on radio. And so I knew that it was going to end. And by 2018, the show was over. And I tried to figure out what I was going to do. And what I discovered was freedom outside of the church. I no longer had to mask myself. I came out of the closet in like 2003-ish. There was a big embezzlement in the church. And, and in the end of it, it was a terrible thing that happened over a long period of time. But in the end, I felt safe enough in my community to tell the truth about myself. And I did. And then I, so when I was in TV, I was kind of poking around. How do I reframe this? How do I become a storyteller still working for the divine? And then that ended and I decided to start Not Church on my channel on YouTube. And what I do is I deconstruct uh, Christian theology from a mystical perspective, bringing in the East and the West uh, with through deep study. And so I, I have an entirely different perspective on Jesus than pretty much anybody I know, um, because he sounds like a near-death experiencer to me. So what I do is I created a community and I do podcast interviews. All around the message that you are beloved more than you could ever imagine, right? Is that the main message? It's the main message. And that's, mm. that's the verbal message, but there's, there's a spiritual message. So one of the things, this crazy thing happened when I got into television is that I discovered, and I'd been practicing Kriya Yoga and Kriya Yoga, I learned about through Prahamayansa Yogananda in the 25th chapter of his autobiography and through the Yoga Sutras in the second section. And I incorporated those practices very early on in my interior meditation life and my physical yoga practice. And so what I discovered was the promise that Yogananda, 
gave in his book that the science of Kriya Yoga works for everybody. I was lost when I came back from my death. I, 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 I felt like I was in exile and that I was in the world of a hellscape suffering where I had been in bliss and paradise. And even though I chose to come back, it was my choice to come back. I didn't like my choice. And so I used the sea of tears that I was crying on my inside to drive me through, through Kriya and through meditation back into the presence of the divine. And by the time I got to television, and I kept all of that a secret, my interior practices, people could see me meditating and at our local YMCA, I did a lot of yoga at the YMCA up in, up in the track by myself. And people could see me doing it, but they didn't know what I was doing. I kept all of that a secret. And when I got to television, what I, what I learned was that the microphone and the camera can carry a sub, like a subspace frequency of the divine presence. Yeah. And I discovered that because people started writing to me hmm. and telling me stories that, that their baby would stop crying whenever I came on television. Their dog would come into the room and stand and watch the show, that the whole family would quiet down, atheists and Buddhists and Christians and Jews and Muslims and you name it, my audience included everybody. And, and the, the, the unifying thing that I discovered that I, that I did every single, every, I was on seven days a week. Every single time I taped, I would meditate before I, I would meditate when I wrote the scripts. They were 240 words each. I'd meditate before I did that. And then I'd kind of get in the flow when I wrote. And then I get to the TV station. I'd meditate before I went on air. And I wasn't actually on air. I should say that's a misnomer. I was being taped in the studio. So before I, before the guys came into tape, um, I would meditate and I would try my best to weave inside the words, the divine presence, mm. not my presence, but mm. the divine presence work in my throat chakra mostly and, and my breath and my root and my feet. And so language is secondary to what I'm actually trying to do. What I'm actually trying to do with the whole of my life is to be the presence allow the presence inside me to exist. And in, in Christian language, that would be not me, but Christ in me. That's the, that's the, the, in the, in the epistles, that's how that's phrased. That the, the truth is that when I was dead in the state, I was in a state of union and perceived the, the very core of the original aspect of myself is the divine being. And, and although I'm in a limited, even in a, in a limited form, not just in my physical self, but that original self is a limitation of the of the divine presence. It's the same thing, and it's superpositioned with it. And so my whole shtick, everything that I do from the day that I came back is because I came back with this. Even before I came back, I had to make a choice to to accept the role as messenger, which I did accept, but I wasn't very pleased about that. And I, I chose to, I, 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 I chose it. Okay. And when I came back, I knew that this was what I had become, but I was not given any words or any way to do this. It's like, it's like, okay. Um, you're, a, you're a brand new baby on earth and you don't know how to feed yourself or take care of yourself. And you better learn really fast because there's nobody here to help you do it. Wow. That's powerful stuff, man. Yeah. So why did you decide or why, 
I guess, did you not see any other way to go about living after you came back? You know, why didn't you choose the hedonism route and just have a great oh. time while you're here? Why did you decide to become the transmitter of this sort of divine knowledge? Uh, did you not see any other way? Uh, there was a little hedonism in me. I chose a little <laughs> hedonism. I totally did. I, 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 yeah, on this right now, I mean, the whole, the, the uh, there was, a, there was this, when I was, when I was, after I chose to come back, I was pre presented with a million different doorways to choose into this life again. And in the center of all these doorways, say the size of uh, Manhattan was a white beam of, of heavenly light. And, and there were doors inside of there, but that was the like a, or a door and it was the solid beam. And I chose off to the side of it. And some of what I chose was the being a messenger. I chose to be a creative. I chose to, uh, like to have fun. I'm at, and that, I guess that's my hedonism. I really like having fun. And I have, I have, I have had a lot of fun in my life and all sorts of different ways. So I, and I, I knew enough to know that I was going to have to have some sort of enjoyment in the world. And it wasn't going to come from, as a human being, I needed some enjoyment. So, so yes, there's a little, I chose a little hedonism for sure. Um, but the dominant, the dominance of what I chose was light itself, because there's nothing else than that. I figured when I was mm -hmm. making this choice that in order for me to be, so I grew, I grew up outside of Boston in a blue collar city. And most of my, my bad dad was professional. Uh, but most of my buddies, they were all blue collar kids, of blue collar guys. And so my milieu, and I worked in blue collar when I was in college, I worked in a shoe factory. I worked in construction. I worked pound and nails. I worked in my, in my, in my community and I figured that how am I going to talk to these guys on my way back? I'm making this choice. How am I going to be able to message to people who are just average folk, just regular people, unless I'm like them? Mm. I have to be like them yeah. in order to be a messenger. So that's what I chose. And I, there is nothing else there's nothing in the world for me that is as satisfactory as the divine presence itself and so i live between the worlds and my my role as i in terms of my interior self is to find this balance point between my humanity and my original self my higher self so that I can function in the world. And what I found is that if I put too much emphasis, if I put the emphasis on, on my being in the world, then I don't get access, I get reduced access to what I really desire. But if I find that I put all of myself and surrender of my false self into the divine, then I gain the world in the process. And so right now it's this YouTube channel 
and I teach meditation and I teach Kriya and I'm just learning to teach Kriya because I've been practicing it forever. But I, I waited until I was out of the church because you don't talk about yoga in the, and you don't do that. Yeah. You know, you can practice it, but don't, you don't get into Upanishads and the Vedas and stuff like that. So yeah. <laughs> that's blasphemy. Yeah, it is. And, and, and so outside the church, I found freedom and, and because of my, because I was on TV, um, here in, in Maine and because I was, I was working in New York, uh, on the Upper West Side, uh, with some networks and they talked me into writing a book, which is why I wrote my book. Um, they, I, by that point, and I'll tell you what was happening. Why did I write my book? One night we all went out drinking and I'm not a big drinker, but that's what happened. We went to dinner and we all started drinking. There's like 15 people at the table and we're somewhere in lower Manhattan. And there's people from all over the United States. There's all these religious communicators. And, uh, and they're like, tell us your story, Peter. We, you know, so I'm like, okay, I gotta, have, I, I gotta have courage to do this. And so, um, when I started my channel, all I, and I talk to people too, I do a lot of counseling because I get through 40 years of counseling practice. I, I try to reach into the heart and soul of in the languaging that I use when I'm creating my scripts for my channel. But really the, the, the essence of what I'm trying to show right now, I'm working on the Aramaic texts, um, the biblical Aramaic texts, because they're Predom they're they're not predominantly, but completely mystical in a way that and it hasn't been layered over by theology, Western theology. And they were located in, in a tiny sect of Christianity the West has long since forgotten about, but they haven't. Mm. Um, so I, I've been doing this kind of deconstruction stuff, but really what I'm trying to do is show people that the which the the main message of Jesus that is in the Gospel of Thomas. That you can peel back the layers of the four gospels and find he was a oneness teacher he's always teaching singleness mm -hmm. and he's telling the people not me you you are the light and so i'm that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to help christians escape from their evangelical um confinement of their theologies yeah dogma right dogma doctrine mm. prisons wow yeah, so in the beginning, you said that there is no religion that could touch upon this so-called truth. Nope. But do you feel as though at the essence of all of these religions, they're trying to touch upon the truth? Yes, and they're all founded by mystics. They're all founded by people who've had these unitive experience, Muhammad, Buddha, Jesus, Lao Tzu, to just name Rumi, Hafez, uh, the list is very long, but the founders, uh, Zohar, uh, what was the founder of Zohar, the, the founder of Sikhism, the, the Zarathustra, that's what I was thinking of, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Baha'i faith, all of them are founded by mystics. And the, what happens is, the, is an individual has these super profound experiences, and then they get written in some way, and then they then they get codified and then people, there are always groups inside of the religions in pursuit of the mystical. There are, but they're usually isolated from the main body of the people. And because belief is so much easier to use as a tool to present ethics, morality to the masses, but also 
use belief as a tool for control yeah. through fear. Mm -hmm. um, and so both those things coexist in religion. Mysticism, yeah. which is a minor, minor thing in terms of um, the size of all the religions. But it's the most, it's the essence of it all, which is why you can look back in the Bible and find parts of this. And you can look in Lao Tzu and find the same thing. And you can look inside uh, the Upanishad and find it there as well. Because yeah. it's human. Mm, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so essentially, uh, these mystics are all trying to say the same thing. Yes. And the problem is, is that it's ineffable. Yeah. And here, and here's the, it, it is, it, when I said I was a little baby with no language, there is no language. And so all mystics all speak in metaphor. Mm -hmm. And that usually goes right over the head of everybody who's there because, and it's not the problem of the people of the audience, a writer who doesn't reach their audience. The problem isn't the audience. The problem is the writer. But the problem for mysticism is that there is no language of communication. It's all subjective. Mm -hmm. It's all interior. And language can never grasp the thing itself yeah. because language is, cons is our concepts of ideas that are attached to other ideas. Language, you know, we know black because we know white. And, and so there's this layer, there's a layering above the thinking. Yeah. Um, and it's frustrating, but it's what we got. That's <laughs> what we got. Well, do you think in order for one to know what these mystics were talking about, one has to sort of go through their own mystical experience themselves? Yeah, it kind of takes one to know one sort of thing. Yeah. And, and that is part of the problem with it as well, because unless you experience it, there's a difference between knowing through experience and belief. Belief is, a, is an ascent to an idea. You say that you, that you say to me, I want you to believe that uh, cows can fly. And you present all these information to me, show me pictures, you show me videos, they're, they're, they're made by AI, they're, art, they're fake, but they look real to me. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I believe that cows can fly, but in reality, they can't. And so I've, de I've decided to agree with your idea. But that's very different from a direct experience. Yeah. Uh, if I if I if I were able to ride on the back of Pegasus from mythical Greeks, if I was able to climb on the back of Pegasus, then I would know that Pegasus was real, yeah. uh, and it wouldn't be a myth to me. And so, it's a frustrating thing, and you can't make people have experiences that can only happen from the inside out. But fortunately. There was a study done at the International Association for Near-Death Studies that came out two years, three years ago at their conference. And I was the, I was the person who introduced this uh, researcher. So I got to stay in the room. It was on Zoom. And she, her name is Woolacott, last name Woolacott. She found in a, in a study that she did that 46 to 49, I don't have the number exact, but it's in the high 40s, not quite 50% of all people that they interviewed had had a visitation from the dead, a communication with somebody they loved who had died. And all of these people knew from that point on 
that their loved one was not really dead the way they thought they had been dead before. Mm. And now they know in their heart that love continues on after. So half the population, almost half the population, has had this kind of experience. It doesn't matter if you're if you're in, uh, an atheist in, in China or an orthodox in Moscow, it doesn't matter. If you have had this experience, your, your belief system shifts because now you, you have a, you have a knowledge yeah. that is inexpressible and, and, and you can't tell anybody the truth of it. You just know it. So I think there's a lot more people who have mystical experiences um, than are willing to admit it to themselves or to other people mm. because of, the, of societal and uh, religious oppression. Yeah. So if we could try to describe and entail what these mystical experiences um, involve and why they're so powerful, how would you describe that to somebody that has never had one? Even though you said most people have, but let's say for the layman, they've never had it. What is the, I guess, incentive in the experience? What will it bring? What will it show somebody, and what will it ultimately bring somebody in their life? What's its What's its value? Yeah, yeah. I I have found it to be invaluable in my capacity, my growing capacity of compassion, kindness, forgiveness, non-judgment relationship, acceptance, um, in the face of having real enemies in my life. I mean, being a pastor sounds like it's all milk toast, but that is not my experience. Someone once tried to kill me. Someone, a whole group of people tried to destroy me personally and professionally, publicly. It's, it, it's a blood sport. Yeah. You know, I worked, I worked in the state house in Boston after I graduated from UMass. I had a political job. I worked on the Ways and Means Committee. And what I learned is that in politics, at least, they're going to, everybody knows that everybody has a knife to stab you in the back. Every, every, it's really pretty open. Everybody knows that they're, that they have their own agendas and that it's a blood sport and, and you better be tough enough to be in politics. But that's not true in the church. And true in the, in the church, the knives are hidden because there's this ethical, idea of goodness and morality that that hides um this duplicitousness and the 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 value of the direct experience is that you don't need to worry or have any attachment to the structures of power that are nefarious are manipulative that the, that one can bring this to one's life with no language at all you don't have to know how to say what your experience is to live it oh. and you live it every day because near-death experience mystical exp there are light there are mystical experiences that are light they're less powerful and there are gradations of this that are much more powerful and the people who have the visitation from the dead, that's a, that's a life-changing thing, but it's also kind of small in comparison to someone who, like um, the Buddha who reached enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. Mm -hmm. um, and 
his point of view is on the same spectrum. And the, there are there are value, there is a value to yourself and to your community that arise out of all of these experiences. But there's a curse too. And the curse is that all of these experiences are so far outside the culture and the society that it separates one from it. And because of the repression of it, even though so many of us have it, it's not, it's like a public secret. Like everybody, half the population knows and nobody talks about it. <laughs> and so the value of your individual experience is that you no longer see yourself as um, the a value of my own individual experience is the end of my, was the end of my grasping of my temporality. That, that I understand that I am an, an eternal being that inhabiting a human form gives me great freedom of eccentricity. Yeah. I get to make choice. I, I don't care about, I don't care that my, some of my choices are difficult for people. It's not like I'm uncaring, but I'll choose to do like the, when I was under attack in this church for this, during this embezzlement, I, it was hard. It was very difficult on my family. It was very difficult on me. There's real human consequences to this, but I never worked for these people. And because I never worked for these people and I only work for the divine, I couldn't do, I could do things on a regular basis that would disturb and upset them and, and, and not care about the consequences. So for instance, this is a minor thing. I, I started wearing an earring in my left ear because it really ticked off one of the members of the church who was on the other side. I mean, it's a stupid thing, right? <laughs> but, but it really was disturbing that the minister wore an earring or that the minister would be barefoot behind the pulpit every Sunday. And there, there were no rules against this, but I would use this a, as a destabilizer. And so people were upset. People would come to me, people I liked, oh, you should take your earring out because it upsets so-and-so. I'm like, F that, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me, it gives me the power to be compassionate for the larger society instead of worrying about the individual member who might happen to hold power of authority over other people. Would you say that's because you felt that you are connected to this greater power that extends way further than the powers that be of humanity? Way far beyond. Yeah. Way far beyond. And it, my, I, I know every, every moment of my life from the day that I came back, I know that I am not this person. Mm. I inhabit this body. Most of me is above this body or outside of this body. A portion of me is inside this body. My whole deal is to reconnect to my higher self so that I can, I can live in the world more uh, uh, effectively for myself and for others. In and not of it. In it, not of it. And that's, and, and, and so one of the other, you know, here's the other thing that happened is that, is that I chose not to go in the family business. You know, my dad was an architect and, and, and the whole, my whole life was going to be an architect. Mm. 
I was drawing from when I was a kid. I was pushing a pencil on a drafting board. I was working in construction. That's why I was working in construction through college is because uh, I was going to learn how to build a, a building from the inside out, understand the bones of it with my hands. And I chose not that. And one of the consequences of not that, my sister was in grad school at the time in architecture, going into the family firm, is that the family firm, the plan never came to fruition. And and so that impacted my sister and my dad. And it and by going into ministry, there's no money in ministry, I totally impacted my finances. And so I could have, uh, a real world consequence of my choice was a lack of potential wealth that I could have achieved. I did, I've done fine. I'm not, I'm not poor. I'm not crying poor mouth here. I've worked very hard in order to create a life for myself and my family, but I didn't make millions of dollars and I chose not to because I can't take it with me. My treasure really is, I needed to pursue the treasure that had the most value for me. And the most value for me is my beloved. Mm. And, and so I invest my mind, soul, and body into this thing and, and, and live with the consequences of it in my life. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Huh. That's some powerful stuff, man. And uh, yeah, I feel as though I've spoken to a lot of people and they've all had their own unique mystical experience. Um, I think you're the first person that I've ever spoke to that has actually uh, physically died <laughs> twice. Um, but I feel as though it, it surrounds that idea of dying, uh, dying before you die, right? That popular Buddhist adage. It has to do something with that, whether it's through meditative techniques, psychedelics, or just having some kind of divine grace that comes in. It, it seems to stem from the idea of a release of that I am just this body. And uh, from that comes a surrender to a greater part of our being and a different orientation in our attitude and our actions uh, toward ourself and society. But it all has to do with like, just letting it all go before you actually let it all go, you know? If you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. Huh, yeah. Oh, that's some powerful stuff. And, and, you know, I didn't answer your first question a little bit. I want to come back to what is mysticism? What is a mystical experience? And mm -hmm. so, um, back in the turn of last century, there was this guy named uh, Henry, uh, Henry James. And he had a, had a famous brother in Massachusetts named William James. And William James is a famous novelist. Mm -hmm. I never really liked his novels. Just that's an aside. It's not my writer. <laughs> mm -hmm. But his brother, Henry, um, gave a series of lectures in Glasgow at the University of Glasgow. And then he got recruited to Harvard. And when he was at Harvard, he published these lectures. And the lectures are all uh, comprise a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in the in, in in this guy Henry James was the father of American psychology. He he was one of the most under publicized, most brilliant men in American history, especially in the twentieth century. But in the varieties of religious experience, he has a chapter on mysticism, where he gives four marks of mysticism, and that's those four marks are the ones. There are other marks as well, but those four marks are fundamental 
They are a mystical experience is passive. It happens to you. You don't make it happen. And that can be on psychedelics. That can be through meditation and it can be through divine grace, uh, visitation from the dead. They're passive. You don't make them happen. They're transient. They have a beginning and an end. They have a start and a finish. They are noetic. And noetic is wisdom in the Bible. When wisdom is the, that's the word for it in the Bible, noetic understanding, which is an understanding of an experience, a subjective understanding of an experience that is so profound that it changes you in your interior and leaves you permanently different. Noetic understanding that is fourth one, fourth mark, ineffable. You can't say it out loud. Yeah. That's good. And try as you might. Um, and, that encompasses near-death experience and psychedelics and visitations from the dead and you know visitations from Jesus and out-of-body experiences. It, it, it's a big tent. Mm. And they are all, all mystical experiences have after effects. They leave you on a different course. And even if it's a one degree change, so you're out, you're out in the bay and you're sailing and you make a one degree co uh, course change and you end up in Iceland instead of Greenland. And that's a very big difference over the course of a lifetime. Mm. Some of those course changes are massive in degrees, um, a full, you know, 180 turn sometimes. And the, the, the long lasting impact of a mystical experience can be cultivated. You can practice, you can look at the mystical experience with your meditative eye, with your breath and your singular, your singular focus and, and not try to grasp it, but allow it to speak to you. Allow the noetic understanding to become a window into your own journey. Yeah. And that those mystical experiences are more common than most people think they are because we don't admit it to ourselves or we don't want to talk about it to anybody else. Um, and I, I, I came to the, to the conclusion, uh, well, let me put it this way. After my TV show ended, I didn't really know what I was going to do for a while. And so I started getting these invitations to preach in all these little tiny churches around New England. And so I did. I went to all these little tiny churches all over the place. And I would eventually, um, early on, I decided to ask everybody because I was there because I was a near-death experiencer. So I was talking mysticism. I started asking the congregation to raise their hand if they had a visitation after after death. Someone they love, come back. Half, 50% of every congregation and some up to 70% of every congregation had a mystical experience like that. And then I asked, who here has ever told anybody? And everybody told somebody, everybody raises their hand. But who here has ever talked about it in church? Nobody. Zero. Because everybody is afraid of talking about it because they don't want to be seen as crazy. Yeah. And then who here is it a motivator for their being in church? Everybody. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That means a lot. <sighs> yeah. I feel as though there is some kind of obligatory servitude that comes from it. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, I can't, not i've had personal mystical experiences from psychedelics and meditative yeah. practices and yep. i can't unsee that stuff like i can't nope. just put that on the back burner and be like that didn't i didn't see that that's whatever i'm gonna go back <laughs> into the matrix you know i can't uh just let that go there's no part of me that says i didn't feel that or see that or 
have that enter my being, you know? So it seems obligatory. I could, I know I have the freedom to ignore the love per se, but I just don't feel as though it's, mm, it's like, it's congruent with truth, if that makes sense, you know? To me. Yeah. And I think it's because it, that ultimately leads me toward a sense of true fulfillment and joy and happiness in this life. You know, I, I like to say we have misplaced priorities on where we try to find happiness. I really think it comes from just embodying love. And I know that sounds a little bit hippie-ish, but I think it's the truth, man. I think deep down we're all servants. We're all sort of like uh, creators in our own right, in our own uh, karma, in our own circumstances. And I think once you embody what your dharma is to mm -hmm. fulfill one's karma here, that is true joy in this humanly experience. And really, it comes down to just uh, in your own way, in your own skill set, just loving others. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. It's really simple when you actually think about it and put it that way. Um, it's not quite easy per se. You know, we all we're going to have trials and tribulations that come up in the journey, but it's simple in that way. It's just, hey, man, just love everybody. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And uh, it's good to hear you talk about it that way because it shows that once you have this experience, there's a, there's another aspect, like if I was going to add uh, part of the marks, uh, something to the, is that once you know what you know, you can't unknow it. You can't yeah. unlearn it. You can't run away from it. You can try. Yeah. You can try to run, but there's nowhere. It's like the story of Jonah. He goes in the whale, and that's that. That's a mystical story. He's like, okay, I have this mystical experience. I don't want it. I'm going to run away from it, but there's nowhere to go because everywhere he goes, there it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Would you say this is something that we all know, and then when we have this experience, it's like a great remembrance? Oh, yeah, for 100%, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like something we all yearn for. Mm-hmm. Mm. And try to fill that empty hole with a whole lot of junk. Yeah. Yeah. That's a consequence of the mystical life. So once you have this, you asked, what's the value? And the value is, it's not only your eternal nature, your, your infinite nature, it's the value of relationship in the world. Imagine, imagine a, an earth where everybody actually loved other people. You don't have to like them, okay? You don't have to like that they're, but, but to love them is to not judge them, not condemn them, forgive. to forgive them, mm -hmm. to allow them to live the life that they're living as long as it does no harm to others. Yeah. And that's a powerful Imagine a planet like that. You know, imagine there's no heaven. <laughs> imagine that if it's here. Yeah. That's the thing is, I think it's possible. There's something in me that just has that pull. Yeah. Uh, I just feel as though it's possible. It seems so outlandish, especially totally. in this this world. You know, this totally. dark world we live in. You turn on Fox News. You're like, what's that? what's going on? But I yeah. don't. There's something in me. Maybe it's my idealism speaking here man but there's something in me that like says that's that's it like we're all supposed to be here to embody love and create pretty much heaven on earth <laughs> and i know that sounds like so lofty and grandiose but really is it i feel as though in my being that's not that's actually like that's that's what it's all about man we're supposed to do that but 
I don't know. Maybe I think we have. It seems like we have a long way to go, but I really don't think so. It's really just that simple switch that we can all make in our own lives to find the kingdom of heaven within, and then uh, then we create it without. But I, it's like we could do it right now. That's the thing is we could do that. We could all get on this wavelength just like this and be oh, of course I'm gonna love each other, but. We don't for some reason. I don't know. Well, because you don't know. So it gets back to it gets back to either you know or you don't know. And you have yeah. to get, you know, tune in, turn on, and drop out. You have to <laughs> you have to tune in and turn on. That's all. It or you have to be tuned in and turned on. Yeah. It reminds me of back in um the seventies, the Yippie movement wanted to drop LSD into Richard Nixon's water. <laughs> and have and 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 have him turn on and and it, it psychedelics can be a shortcut they can also be terrifying yeah and you need set and setting and take care of yourself and do it all in the right way and but there's this other thing going on for the first time in the history of the world there's always been near-death experiencers there've always been mystics there's always been um you know you probably know about the stoned ape theory and right so there's always been that um but nowadays there's something new and medical technology, medical science has been bringing back the dead, creating theonauts is what I'm calling them, uh, sending de the dead people die and they go back, they go into the divine presence, they go to heaven or paradise, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and then they get dragged back through technology. And now there are tens of millions in the United States alone, all over the world, hundreds of millions as medical technology has spread since the 1960s when cardiac care came online primarily. And you get the, now you get the paddles. You've got cardiac, all sorts of cardiac care in the, in the surgery and in the emergency rooms. And there are tens, hundreds of millions of us all over the world. And that's a totally new thing. We are manufacturing mystics and wow. these manufactured mystics one of the one of the things that was difficult my first 20 years is i was by myself one of the reasons i went to divinity school and studied mysticism is because they were like me they were my peer group i had no other peer group except for these old dead people from who wrote books that's it you know and then i discovered only in like 2015 that there was a whole millions of us <laughs> and we're a community and one of the reasons why I came out of the closet with a book is be after being talked into it by these people in New York was, which I didn't want to do, by the way, this scary thing, you know, it's a scary thing to come out of the closet in a big way. I, I risked my career. I risked my credibility. I risked my family. My folks didn't believe me. I risked everything. And, um, and plus the writing, like I was a literature major. Right? I know good writing. I studied it. I, I want to be a good writer. It's pretty scary to put your, bear your soul and bear your talent. And I, I did it because I want to be part of the freeing of the voices of near death experiencers so that we can, if enough near death experiencers got podcasts and books and movies and magazines and newspapers and documentaries, and we're talking to our neighbors about it, I want to normalize this. If we can normalize near death experience in the public square, then we can, then all the other people who've had, there's many more of them who've had other kinds of mystical experiences can feel free to begin to discuss theirs, then maybe we have enough of us to nudge the earth in a new direction. Yeah. 
not to mention the divine energy that is experiential that happens when we gather together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> you too. You're part of it. You're doing your podcast is part of it. Your 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 mystical experience is a part of it. It's a much bigger picture. There's there are tens of millions of spokespeople. Mm. And and the the big the the differentiator that I that I see is that the the those who s- seek the oneness of being having been touched by it have less self-interest in the manipulation of their spiritual power in the world. See what I'm trying to say there? I'm trying to say it in a kind way um, because e- even that manipulation of the spiritual power in the world, it, it's fine. It's okay. It's, you know, unless you're doing it with evil intent, it's all right to use your, to try to manifest what you want in your life. But you're, but, but in that, you're still working in, in the, in this realm. And there's a deeper realm. And, and when one works in the deeper realm, it automatically manipulates the world around you. It automatically creates a bubble of heaven where you live. Mm-hmm. And then it has its own will, thy will be done. And every mystical tradition, it's always thy will be done. It's always self-surrender. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Powerful stuff. <sighs> this is good, man. <sighs> well, can I tell you about the time I took the triple hit of LSD? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was debating I would, on asking if you've done psychedelics or not, but I, I totally go. have. And, okay. um, and so when I was in high school, um, I'll, I'll spare the background story uh, to a certain extent and say that I was uh, I was in an extreme. I was on the edge of suicidal despair due to circumstances in my family life that I tried to, to kill myself with asphyxiation by hooking a hose to the back of my car, but I couldn't get the damn garage door to shut over the end of my car because there was too much junk in the car, in the garage. Wow. So instead, I I knew one of the guys, I went to a Catholic school, an all-boys Catholic school out near Wista. I'll just leave it at that. And, um, and I knew one of the guys had a pocket full of LSD, which I'd never done before. It was purple microdot. And... Um, and so I decided instead of killing myself, I was going to, there was a song at the time, you could take a trip and never leave the farm was one of the, was one of the, the refrains in this song. And I didn't remember the song except for that. So I decided to leave the farm. I take a trip. And, and so I ended up taking three hits uh, instead of just this one. And how that happened was my own bravado and stupidity. And, and so I took these three hits and by the peak of the experience, I'll tell you, I won't tell the whole story. By the peak of the experience, I was on, I was on the, the National Ski Patrol working at a, at a, at an, on a Friday night under the lights at a hill outside of Boston. And, and I was like the main patroller on duty and I was tripping my brains out. And so I, I 
had this experience where I was skiing down the slope and I had rainbow, a rainbow, like I now know is like my, my chakra colors in a stack shooting out behind me, like a, like a waving rainbow that I could see from outside myself. And I hit this jump and I thought I could fly. And then when I landed, I realized that I couldn't. And I thought, Oh my God, I got to take a break. So I went off into the back trail. And I go off into the back trail in the dark and I'm by myself, but it's not quite dark yet. It's still dusky out. And, and as I stood there, scared out of my mind, because I'm like, oh, how am I going to, people could, people could get hurt tonight. And how, how am I going to be able to handle this? Mm. You know, I'm, I have a responsibility here and I'm not living up to it. And, and as I stood there at the bottom, I was at the bottom of the slope. The whole slope became this fluid wave. This from way up above me, the whole thing became an undulating fluid wave. And all the trees started swaying back and forth. And everything was pulsating. The sky was, was this waveform. And I was this waveform. And inside of every molecule, inside of all of the snowflakes and the, the stone wall and all the tree bark and, 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 and myself, there was this spoken I am and it was just as I am and it was in me and it was inside of everything. Wow. It was an expression of the, of the, of the totality of the divine presence and end of duality. There was this oneness sweeping through all of this fragmented uh, molecular structure of all these different and you know trees and plants and me and and the sky and the moon and all this stuff and the stars wow. and 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 it roared inside me and then it stopped and from that day forward i became a different person hmm. i understood the duality was not real <laughs> that all is one and and then right after that, one of the religion teachers in my religious class, I was a senior in, at the school, like in springtime, uh, went off to a monastery outside and Spencer went to St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts, where he learned what was then called contemplative meditation uh, under the monks who had mushed together Theravada Buddhism from the Barry Center, the Zen Center in Barry, and the classical religious uh, mystical texts, the Cloud of Unknowing, the uh, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila in the Catholic Church, and created a breath practice. And this brother, this teacher taught us this breath practice and focus. And from the, that day forward, 1977, I began my meditation practice because it spoke to me on my interior. And so these two experiences, which were in close sequence to each other, uh, were part of my preparation for what came next mm. and if it if it had not been for my psychedelic experience and I, then when i was in college i was like to, i i think i took 11 or 12 other acid trips in order to get back to that place and i i came close to the edge of it but i never got back to that same place again yeah i only needed that one yeah so once you get the message hang up the phone yeah <laughs> and the message is i am that i am <laughs> yep oh man wow yeah that's the power of psychedelics right and there. john hopkins university they've they put it to the test and study and they have evidence oh yeah oh yeah it's coming out now 
cats out yep. of the bag. We know that it's not just getting high or trying to escape. It's uh, mm -hmm. showing us a greater part of our being if used responsibly and correctly. Maybe not mm -hmm. on a ski trail, but hey, it worked for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was young <laughs> and stupid. Okay. <laughs> hey, it worked in that in the time. Yeah. But yeah, man, that's a good story. That's great. That's uh, powerful stuff. Like you said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -mm. And also, I recommend to anybody listening uh, to check out your story of your actual near-death experiences. We didn't get into it on this, I think, in the interest of everybody's time. But mm. you have a very, very profound and remarkable story relating to that. So I recommend anybody listening to this in the future, go check out other videos of you explaining it. Because you have a very poetic way of explaining it. Um, so... Yeah, I don't have anything else to say other than that, man. Um, geez, uh, I don't know where to go. Do you you want to wrap this thing up soon? You got any like anything you want to say? Get off your chest. Sure, uh, I'm a I I help people reintegrate after their experiences. That's my niche in my counseling. And all you need is love. La -da 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 -da. That's it. You don't have to be a meditator. You don't have to do yoga. You don't have to do. All you have to do is love the people who love you. And, and, and let them love you back. And when you die, you will see for yourself. You will see for yourself that, all, that love is infinite beyond conception. And if you merely listen to it or turn an eye toward it or accept it in any fashion, you become yourself again. Wow. Amen to that. On that note, I thank you very much, Peter, for coming on here. This was a wonderful talk. Um, thank you for your time, effort, and wisdom that you brought to me and everybody else. Keep doing your thing, man. You're fighting the good fight. I can't, uh, I, yeah, I can't recommend it more enough to you, man. You're doing the right thing, and I think you're changing a lot of people's lives. This was great. So, yeah, keep on keeping on. Thanks, brother. And thank you so much for having me on, Gary. And it's been good to get to know you as a person, too. Yeah, same to you, Peter. Same to Peace you. Peace to you. Peace to you. Peace to everybody that listened. Peace and love. Peace and love.